0: Well, thank you so much, Worship Ministries, for leading us today in worship. As I said this morning, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as we begin our time here gathered around the Word of God. And I want to just invite you to what I would call the divine act of salvation. That's really what we're going to celebrate uh, with these elements here that represent the body and blood of our Lord. And the church historically has done this since that Thursday evening when Jesus himself instituted this celebration, sometimes referred to as the Last Supper. We refer to it today as the Lord's Supper. So in order to help us celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I'm going to ask our deacons to come and take their place, our ministers, if they will come and take their place here, uh, Barry and Kurt, our associate pastors here at our church will also uh, assist today. And this morning as we prepare ourselves to receive these elements, I wanna share just a passage of Scripture with you from the Gospel of John. As I shared with you already, we're going to be using John to guide us most of this year. We've begun our journey in Genesis The reason for that is that's where John begins also his reflection on the history of creation and the history of the world uh, led him to pen these words as the opening to his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Very familiar words to us, glorious, majestic words where John captures the essence of creation in just this opening paragraph of the prologue to his gospel. And in it, he celebrates both creation and salvation. But this morning, as we gather around these tables, we'll be reminded of the divine act of God's salvation We believe that just as John says that the Lord Jesus is the incarnate Word of God, and it is through him God has chosen to offer redemption for all of us. And you and I today, as we made our way into this room, or you're joining us online, there are many things that distinguish us and many things that mark us as different, but there are some things that bind us all together. And One of the things that binds us all together is that we all need salvation. We all need to be rescued and redeemed and delivered. And the only path for that is through the Lord Jesus himself. And so we celebrate that need today. We acknowledge it and celebrate what God has done in response to our need. We believe that this bread and this juice symbolizes for us the very body and blood of Jesus. And so today we'll be reminded of that as we receive the elements. When the deacons pass the tray in front of you, you'll notice that each one of these holes in the container has two cups. The cups are stacked. One of those has the bread, the other has the juice. So if you'll just take that one stack and then hold on to it, I'll give you instructions as we'll receive the elements together here in just a moment. If you know the Lord Jesus, and you made a decision to follow him, we invite you to participate with us. Let me pray for us and ask God's blessing on these elements, and then our deacons will distribute them to you. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you've responded to our deepest need, that you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to live a perfect life on this earth, to show us the way to live, to offer us instruction and counsel, and to be the full revelation of yourself to us and also Lord we're reminded today that he gave himself up as a sacrifice for our sin so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and that we could receive the precious gift of salvation of life eternal life so today as Lord, as we'll receive these elements here in a moment, we're reminded that this bread symbolizes for us the very body in which the Lord lived, the perfect life, and gave himself up as a sacrifice for us. We'll be reminded of, this, of his blood as we'll partake of this juice in a moment and the recognition that our salvation, while it's free, it's anything but cheap. It costs the very life of your son. We're so grateful. We're humbled by it all. And we trust, Lord, that as we prepare our hearts to receive and celebrate, Lord, that in these few moments we'll recognize the sacredness of this and acknowledge the depth of our need and the depth of your mercy. So we pray your blessings on these elements and on us, in Jesus' name, amen. Most meaningful moments in our lives are only understood in retrospect. What I mean by that is sometimes you find yourself in an incredibly meaningful moment. And because you're in the midst of living it, it might be lost on you a little bit, but in retrospect, you're mindful sometimes of just how powerful and pivotal that moment was in your life. I think this Lord's Supper is a lot like that. Those disciples that were there that night, they had... Celebrated Passover their whole lives. They had been with their families and their close friends. and So this wasn't new to them. This is something that was just built into the rhythm of their lives as Jews. But this one. This one. They had celebrated the Passover with Jesus before. They had been in Jerusalem with Jesus before. But this one. When Jesus said, remember. Well in retrospect. This particular moment became a huge, pivotal, meaningful moment for those disciples, they never forget. In fact, it was so memorable and so powerful that here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still joining in that moment. Just imagine how meaningful this must really be and why it was so important to Jesus that we do it and that we remember him. And so, today, I wanna to invite you into that moment to try to imagine what it must have been like for them but how also those meaningful moments in our lives continue to shape us as the people of God. So today, we believe this bread symbolizes the very body of the Lord Jesus. Take it in remembrance of Him. <clears throat> we also believe that this juice symbolizes the very blood of Jesus, which was shed on the cross. For our sin. In remembrance of him, drink it. And all God's people said amen. Amen. <clears throat> amen. Thank you, Deacons. Thank you, Barry and Kurt. Well, as we continue this morning, let me remind you of our theme for this season. It is, why does anything matter? And we are exploring our story as the people of God. And you remember, we've declared that this will be a season for us where we will reflect and learn and we will also be disciplined in that journey. We refer to it as apologetics. We've already introduced that theme. And remember, I shared with you last Sunday, there's a difference between apologetics and arguing. This last week, our staff, we made our way over to UTA to the Baptist student ministry where Gary Stidham leads that ministry. He and his wife, Teresa, they're members of our church. Gary's a deacon here and has been on that campus now for a long time. And so we went over just to bless him and his staff and we prayed over them and then we interviewed Gary and we talked a little bit about apologetics and Gary said this, he said, one of the things that. Sometimes we have to be careful about with apologetics is that Christians want to learn how to defend their faith and then they look for somebody that they can argue with about it. That's not what this is. This is us learning our story so that we can represent this story and articulate it in a way that's wholesome that leads people to give consideration to this particular story. And so we began last Sunday with just the teaching about God. God simply is. Well, today, we'll look at the second part of that conversation around the idea of the divine act of creation. Last Sunday, God simply is. He's eternal, he's all-knowing, he's personal, he's perfect, he's providential, he's powerful, he's purposeful. But today, we're going to look at what he has done. And we begin by celebrating the fact that God has created all things. It's our belief that creation is an expression of his will and his desire. So with that said, we're going to look at the same text basically we looked at last Sunday. And that is, if you'll go all the way to the very beginning, the first page of your Bible, Genesis 1. Here's what I want us to do today. Um, God created everything. And so... Look at Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, the story will continue to unfold on that first page, okay? Go to the very last verse of Genesis 1. Verse 31, and God saw all that he had made. It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. One of my favorite statements in the Bible. What an understatement. (laughs) So, by the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Again, what a powerful, beautiful, majestic story. So here's where we begin today. The Bible portrays creation as divine activity that results in the appearance of and the ordering of the heavens. And the earth. That's how the Bible opens. The Bible opens with God. Derek Kidner has written a very classic commentary on the Book of Genesis. It's a very small volume in the Tyndale Old Testament series, but it is don't be don't be deceived by how short it is. It is really really insightful. Here's what he says about God. In Genesis one. It is no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. For this word dominates the whole chapter and catches catches the eye at every point of the page. It is used some thirty-five times in as many verses of the story. The passage, indeed, the whole book, is about him, first of all. To read it with any other primary interest, which is all too possible, is to misread it. In other words, Kidner says God is the subject of the first sentence. He's mentioned 35 more times on page one. In fact, the whole book is about him. Uh, Another commentator, Kenneth Matthews, has written this commentary on Genesis, and he says God is the grammatical subject and the thematic subject of Genesis 1 and 2. And you'll notice the language God created. The Hebrew word for create is bara, bara. What's interesting about that particular word, it's used 48 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word translated create in English. 48 times in the Old Testament, you find the word bara or create. Every single time in the Old Testament, God is always the subject. In other words, the point of the Hebrew Bible is only God creates. It's a very powerful truth. And I want you to notice verse 2. When the Bible opens, the earth is formless and void, empty, and dark. And the Spirit of God is hovering over the darkness. And then what happens? Creation. Now, John Walton has also written a commentary on Genesis. Matthews, Walton, Kidner, these are great Old Testament scholars. Here's what John Walton says about creation. Creation flows out of who God is. It is a natural expression of his attributes. God's attributes intrinsically lead to his creative work just as they lead to his salvific work. God needs no motivation to create. It simply flows from who he is. He doesn't need to create. He's the creator. When we honor and serve him, it is in recognition of those attributes. In other words, Walton says God simply is and intrinsically, because of his very nature, he creates. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need motivation to do it. He doesn't need it. He has just chosen to do it. The entire Bible affirms the divine activity of creation. The Bible consistently teaches us that all of creation exists because of the willful activity of God. There is nothing accidental or incidental about it. So, for example, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what was made, so that what is seen was not made of what was visible. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says, here's what we believe, God created all this at his command and he created it without anything that was visible because he's God. So God is, God wills, and God acts. That's where our story begins. So when you think about apologetics, where do we start? Well, we start with God and the truth that he simply is. And then we speak into our reality. Our reality is this cosmos. Our reality is this world, this universe. And we believe that God has ordained it. So, Here's what happens on page one. If you had to tell this story, how would you tell it? Think about it. How how would you tell the story of the beginning of everything that is? (laughs) Well, that's Moses' assignment. We believe he's the principal author of Genesis. So Moses does it very succinctly, actually, on page one. And here's what happens. Chaos is going to be ordered and emptiness is filled. God assigns function to creation. So Genesis one opens in chaos in disorder, in emptiness, and darkness. Well, how does Genesis 1 end? Genesis 1 ends with creation is now ordered, it is no longer empty, it's full, it's purposeful, it's functional, and both life and light now exist. So, with that said, here's also how I might put it creation is an act of divine revelation. So I want us to think of it that way. God's self-revelation through creation fills the created universe with purpose. In other words, you and I believe that this universe has purpose because of the God who stands behind it. As I said, it's our conviction as Christians that there is nothing accidental or incidental about the universe itself. The Bible relates this grand sweeping story in the opening pages in this picturesque language. How do you describe Genesis 1 from a literary perspective? Many scholars have chosen to refer to it as semi-poetic narrative. In other words, it's not pure poetry, but it's not only narrative. It has a certain cadence and a certain rhythm. For example, we'll find the refrain, there was evening and there was morning, several times in these verses. We'll also hear the repetition of, and God said, again, And again, and yet in the midst of the poetic beauty of that passage, a story unfolds, a story that's progressive, that reveals the purposeful activity of a creator. And I would also tell you, it's a grand story, and the entire book of Genesis, 50 pages, if you just take Genesis itself, it stands alone in antiquity. There is no other ancient account of creation that even comes close to Genesis. This is the most holistic, expressive statement about creation that exists in all of antiquity. Even those who don't accept it as divine and inspired agree with that position. And so, what does Genesis 1 do for us? Well, it rules out some things for us. For example, Derek Kidner points out in his commentary on Genesis, it rules out polytheism. You know, people in the ancient world tended to believe in multiple gods. Well, Genesis 1 rules that out. There is only one God. The eternity of matter that's a that's a modern error in other words some modern scientists surmise that matter or at least particle if you will must be eternal well this rules that particular view out the evil of matter there were some in the ancient world who believed that all matter was evil well that rules this out because God created it. it can't be evil he called it good Astrology, this whole idea that the alignment of the stars somehow influences behaviors of human beings, that's far into Genesis 1. It's ruled out. Empty humans of their meaning and human history of its meaning. If you're only a materialist, and if you believe only in a mechanical view of the universe, then the universe is just a system of laws and random chance. There's no personal connection with any power beyond the actual universe itself, according to what some scientists and philosophers teach today. If you opt for that perspective, then not only is there no meaning and purpose in the universe, there's no meaning and purpose in you or any human. Human history is void of any meaning or purpose. Once again, the question, why does anything matter? It hinges on how you answer these questions. Where did all this come from? So God is very purposeful. He's very thorough in his design for the universe. So, two key words in what I just shared with you, revelation and creation. What is revelation? I'm not talking about the last book of the Bible. I'm talking about the whole understanding of that word theologically. Revelation is simply this. It's the act of disclosure. It means to unveil. And that's where we start. You see, the God of the Bible is a self-existent, living, eternal, mysterious, purposeful being. He is spirit and he is beyond our comprehension. And yet, he has chosen to make himself known to us. Hallelujah. Because had he not chosen to reveal himself to us, we would not know him. That's our only hope. He cannot possibly be known fully. Only what he chooses to reveal is what we know. So the first page of the Bible is, is a page about God's revelation of himself to us. He speaks His Word represents His will. His Word is powerful and purposeful. It's an intimate expression of His essence, His character, His his nature. Revelation is an activity of God. That's what's happening on page one of our Bibles. And guess what, y'all? We need it. Because without His revelation, we would not know Him or anything else. It's in the light of knowing God that we have a chance to know anything. Paul says that in 1 Timothy 6. He says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. So, if God has not chosen to reveal himself, we wouldn't know him. Now, God can't be known in ways that we know other other objects, He's not visible necessarily or discernible to the human eye. And he specifically forbids us to try and cast his image in any form. Remember the Ten Commandments, don't make any images of me. And the reason for that is because he's placed his image in us. So there's no need for you and I to try to cast him with some kind of physical figure. He will do that himself. So here's the challenge. If you can't see him or know him, then what are our options? (laughs) Well, the only option is that he has chosen to reveal himself. And the apostle John connects all of this to his gospel to let us know that God has revealed himself most fully and most completely through the life, work, and testimony, words, actions, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ, his son. And so we are completely dependent upon God to reveal himself to us. So how does he do it? Well, he reveals himself in many ways. Theologians typically refer to it as general and specific or special. Special revelation is the word of God, the scripture, certainly Jesus. But His Holy Spirit, obviously. But from a general perspective, how does God reveal himself to us? Through creation. He's making himself known to us through creation. Creation is the activity of God and God alone. And so in the strictest sense, as we discovered already this morning... Only God creates. He's the subject of that verb every time in the Hebrew Bible. But when God speaks, creation occurs. And guess what creation does? It responds in humility and in obedience to the voice of the Creator. And the Bible, Genesis 1, and the rest of the teaching of the Scripture makes it clear that God and God alone is responsible for this creation. And it is how he has revealed himself. It's powerful. I mean, we we look at these images of all these incredible telescopes that we have available to us, and we look at the vast expanse of the cosmos, and also we have these incredibly powerful microscopes where we can look at the tiniest form of life, and once again, we're amazed at the complexity of all of it, and here it is stated very succinctly for us. God has created the vast expanse of the cosmos and he's placed everything in just the right place. And the planets and the stars, they respond to the creator's voice and they march across the heavens at his beck and call. And as page one unfolds, we discover all kinds of things happen. God chooses to focus his attention on this one planet we know as earth. And eventually what he's going to do is he's going to create mankind to bear his image, and his glory to be on display through them. That will be what we do next Sunday morning. We'll get to the creation of humanity. But let me just say this. Anytime you're studying the book of Genesis, particularly Genesis 1 and 2, you have to enter into a conversation with the world around us. So can I say just a quick word about science, the biblical texts, and theological reflection because we have to have that conversation and we should. And let me just remind you that the aim of each of these could be very different. For example, the aim of science is to try to determine what or how. The biblical text is a message of revelation. The biblical text connected to theological reflection addresses another question that science can never touch and that's the question why. Science is ill-equipped to address the question, why? And so, guess what happens to us? We take scientific inquiry, but we also spend time in the biblical text with theological reflection, and we can answer all of those questions. And guess what all those questions lead us to? Who? (laughs) That's what happens to us. But the debate that's occurring today about the origins of the universe they really can be divided into, the people who are in the debate can be divided into two main camps, naturalism and theism. In other words, you either believe that someone is behind all this or not. You believe there's a purely naturalist explanation of all this or you believe it's too comprehensive and too complex. There is someone behind it and underneath it. It's a very simplistic Um, analysis, but it's the truth. There's scientific naturalism, and there is theological or scientific theism. In other words, either there's an intelligent designer behind all of this or not. Naturalists teach this. They believe that the beginning of the universe actually occurs through the emergence of a particle that contains all of space, time, and matter crushed together. Sometime in the far distant past, That particle exploded in what you might call a boom or a bang, and it produced all the right gases necessary to form the stars of this expanding universe. Most naturalist scientists contend, however, there had to be a starting point for all of that. So there's the clear admission today, even of the most naturalistic secular scientists, that at some point in the far distant past, time was actually created. Now, that is an incredible admission. In other words, the universe had a starting point and something incredible occurred in order for all of this to exist, to which those of us on the theistic side applaud and say, you're exactly right. There was a time when all this was not, and somehow it all came into being, and that completely lines up with our understanding of Genesis. There is universal agreement, though, that there's something unnatural about the emergence of things like the irreducible complexity of DNA. There's something that naturalists can't explain, the development of language or the emergence of self-awareness or consciousness in humanity. Those realities do not fit the random selection and unguided mutation views of naturalism. In other words, even the most ardent secularist admits there is something else afoot. We just don't know what it is yet. Well, you and I would say, we do. Kenneth Matthews, in his commentary on Genesis, he said, imagine it like this. What if you were on a hike in the mountains and you saw... The face or some object, some some view of some mountain. And you thought to yourself, that looks like a human face. And if you were to get to it upon much closer inspection, you would discover, oh no, that's not really it. This is just, just what's happened through the time as weather has worn down this particular side of the mountain. Contrast that with visiting Mount Rushmore. Where obviously some hand has been at work. Matthew says, there's the difference between the theist and the secularist. We look at all this and say, it's too complex. It's too majestic. It contains too many particularities. And so we see the evidence of a hand at work, and that's the only explanation. So here's what I would say. Read the Bible. Let it speak authoritatively and comprehensively in this arena. Engage in theological reflection. Include disciplines like scientific inquiry, philosophical discovery, mathematic principles, because we're all looking for truth. And so we're not afraid of science. We're not afraid of truth because as Christians, we believe God is behind it all in the first place. So, but remember this, the Bible's not primarily a science textbook. It's not a book designed to address reality from a scientific perspective. However, when you read the scripture, particularly Genesis 1, The division of God's creative activity, the sequencing of it, allows for the possibility of an interpretation that's not bound necessarily by 24-hour days. The way the story is told allows for some kind of progressive view of the events described on page one of Genesis. The Hebrew word yom is a word that's pregnant with meaning. It's translated with the English word day, But we all know that that word day has many meanings. It can mean a 24-hour period. Of course it can. But it also is used in the context of things like the day of the Lord or the day of atonement or the day of reckoning. It is a measurement of time. We also know in the New Testament the Bible says to God a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So there's enough fluidity here in this text to allow us to think scientifically without going off the deep end. People like Stephen Hawking and others who have looked for that elusive theory of everything, trying to find the answer, if you will, for the reality behind all of this incredible design. But do you know that right now, there are some incredibly competent, brilliant scientists who are exploring all this from a theistic point of view. People like Francis Collins, Stephen Meyer, They're looking at the irreducible complexity of human DNA. They're experiencing the the beauty of this magical or mysterious, if you want to call it that, design, this language of the DNA code that evidently we now believe could not be the result of happenstance or mutation. However, if you adopt the view that there's a God who stands behind it, then you know you're going to be susceptible to all kinds of critique and criticism. And more often than not, the critique and criticism is not aimed at the argument that we present. It's actually aimed at us. So, science today is filled with people who share the view of Hawking, that there's something afoot, we just don't know what it is. So, the theory of evolution has become so embedded in the psyche of modern science that to declare that it remains a theory borders on blasphemy, even though it's called the theory of evolution. And anyone who offers any counter to current revolutionary, evolutionary perspectives, we are looked at as freaks, obscurantists, religious fundamentalists. We're, we're viewed as a backwards hayseed who probably believes Elvis is still alive, and we never actually walked on the moon. Now, we're not really sure about Elvis, by the way, just to say. <laughs> but the point is, people like Francis Collins, Stephen Meyer, all these other brilliant scientists I'm not waiting on them to prove Genesis 1. However, they do corroborate much as what, of what is taught in texts like Genesis 1. It's not about proving. It's about offering us more light and guidance so that our faith will continue to be solidified even though our faith is in God himself and how he's revealed himself through his word. So let me end with this. Here's what I believe. I believe that creation... Everything that we know and see exists due to God's express will and desire. And so creation reveals and reflects the majesty and glory of God. We heard our choir sing about it this morning. This week I'm gonna ask you to read some powerful texts in our daily Bible readings. Psalm 19, Job 38 and 39, where the majesty and the glory of God is on display. I believe that creation bears the imprint and the character of its creator. Here in a couple of weeks, I'll be in Rome again. You don't have to point out a statue made by Michelangelo to me. I recognize it. You don't have to point out to me a painting from the hand of Michelangelo. I recognize it. I understand his handiwork. When you look at modern art, no one has to tell me that that's a Picasso he was the master of cubism, an avant-garde leader in modern art forms. I recognize it when I see it. In fact, when I hear the, the shrill voices of the Beach Boys or the softer tones of the Bee Gees, I, I don't need anybody to tell me who's singing. I, I recognize the expression of those artists that, that raspy lead voice of blood, sweat, and tears, the silhouette of Tom Landry in his legendary hat, the, the shaky hand of that skinny deputy who's, trying to, deputy who's trying to load that one bullet in his revolver, um, that rich baritone voice when I hear White Christmas, the, the squinty eyes of that cowboy in a dead stare on a dusty street with the music of the good and the bad and the ugly blaring in the background. I don't need you to tell me who they are. I recognize them. And so, Genesis 1 is not an argument for God's existence. It, the Bible doesn't enter into that discussion. The Bible simply shares the story of God in his creation. This is a God who is meant. He's a personal God. He's a God who's to be obeyed. He speaks, he beckons, he loves, and he calls, and I see his hand everywhere I look. He's revealed himself. Praise his name. Some of y'all in this room are old enough to remember Christmas Eve of 1968. We'll have many in the next service who'll have to Google that. But it was Christmas Eve 1968. William Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman were in that Apollo 8 capsule. They had been launched, and they left our atmosphere, and they were the very first Apollo crew to orbit the moon. They were the first humans to see the backside of the moon and on Christmas Eve they were broadcast back to the earth and at that time they were the first human beings to actually view an earth rise over the horizon of the moon and some of y'all remember that night that night They were broadcast on national television. And at the time, the broadcast of the Apollo 8 statement was the single largest television broadcast in the history of TV. Millions of people literally around the world watched. And if you remember what happened, those three astronauts, they're the only Apollo team where all three astronauts are still alive. Frank Borman, William Andrew, (coughs) I'm sorry, (coughs) William Anders and Jim Lovell. When well, those three astronauts, their spacecraft made its way around the moon and out the window, they saw the earth, that blue sphere suspended in the blackness of space, huddled together in that small, tiny capsule. They all leaned into a microphone. Do you remember what they did? They didn't quote Einstein's theory of relativity. You heard the voice of Frank Borman, who began to read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And those men read Genesis one 1 through 10. Borman was asked later, why did you choose to read that? He said, there was nothing else to say. What the Bible says, and God saw all he had made, and it was very good. I would say, very good indeed. Let's pray together. Well, Father, today we, we do bow in the face of these great truths In the beginning, you were there. And you chose in your sovereignty to create all that is. And today we thank you. We live in it. We enjoy it. We experience it. And I pray, Lord, that it won't be lost on us, just how incredibly majestic it is. And I'm grateful, Lord, that we're beyond the temptation to worship it. But instead, you've given us enough insight and revelation to worship you instead. May we learn our story even more deeply and share it more faithfully in a world that does not know what to worship. May it be so. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.